and welcome to episode 64 of Girl Mode. I'm one of your hosts, Ruffin and B. Why are you laughing at and me? And I'm your other host, Willa Rowe. I don't know. I just... The vibe. Is it because you I'm can always fun. see that I forget the number when I have to say it? A little bit. I don't know. I'm just in a silly, goofy mood. We just like... That's good. We just... We just like talked about random shit for a little bit and now I'm just in a goofy mm-hmm. mood and then we just sat silently for like 15 seconds <laughs> and then just jumped into this and I don't know my mind is like not in it. I'm just like it is always I'm just a, a weird silly transition goofy person right now. I, yeah. Like let's have a conversation and then sit quietly for a little bit so we mm-hmm. can clap at each other. Yeah. Well the issue is is that now it's even worse though because like I don't get to talk to you as much during the day to day of a week. So now I'm just like, I just need to right. talk. I just need to catch up. I think you just need to convince Kotaku to let you be on a video call with me all day, like we used to do. I think, you know, I have two monitors. I can figure it out. Yeah. I'm not bothering I'm sure Jen anybody. Would be cool with it. I'm sure Jen yeah. would love it. She'd come say hi. <laughs> oh. But until that happens, this is this is the time we have. And so mm-hmm. we're gonna spend it wisely. By talking about shit we hate about video games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, first up, uh, I think the big thing this week was state of play. That sure was a thing that happened this it, week. It, I mean, the big thing, quote unquote. It was in- insanely forgettable. It was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are only a couple things that stood out to me, most of them for bad reasons, though, which was um, Zenless Zone Zero had a trailer, um, which Mm -hmm. is the like new Hoyaverse game that's like an urban fantasy RPG. At first, when it started, I was like, oh, Zenless Zone Zero, cool, maybe we'll get some information. And then it had like a super short kind of just like vibe sizzle reel and then it was like in development for playstation 5 and i was like i kind of expected that the thing that i said um the thing that i said i was like go off zenless zone zero give us nothing it's yeah i mean like it's hard for me to feel sad about a trailer with like cute anime girls hitting things with swords like that's mostly what i want out of video games these days but it was just like oh there's okay like We know that this game is being made and we figured it was going to come to PS5 because what else would they do with it? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of sad. But was there a good like what was your good highlight? What was the thing you felt the least bad about? I mean, the thing I felt the least bad about was probably Death Stranding 2. Hmm. Okay. Just because like. Of all the things that were shown it's the thing that i probably want to play the most and i think has potential to actually maybe be good or at least interesting interesting yeah as opposed to most things where it was like hell divers 2 i do not give a singular shit silent hill 2 remake that is i think going to be a bit of a disaster yeah it was weird that silent hill 2 trailer There's something very upsetting about the, like, action game presentation of it, of him just shooting these, like, what are, you know, obviously, like, very monstrous, but these sort of, like, female forms with a shotgun in the face in, like, this very action-packed way. Like, when it's, when it's horror, it, like, it makes sense and it feels right, but when it feels more like it's 
has the like same camera as God of War. It just feels icky to me. The issue is, is that I feel like it's in the vein of the horror remake that was popularized by Capcom for Resident Evil. And that started with mm-hmm. RE2 remake, which is as much as I hate remakes, RE2 remake is like fucking amazing, actually. But <laughs> I think we should play it, by the way. But RE2 remake is very much like an action horror game. And it kind of takes that yeah. over the shoulder approach. And I think that the Silent Hill 2 remake just assumes that, you know, it's a modern AAA g- or like third person game. It has to have that camera and it has to lean into action in the weirdest way. And it's just like it's so dissonant from what I think Silent Hill 2 is. is. It's a bummer. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of agree. Like, Death Stranding 2 definitely looked the most interesting. They jokerified Troy Baker. Yeah, fi- oh, finally that guy's getting work, you know. It's uh, <laughs> it's good to hear him in a game. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of... I'm, I, I feel like I have a, um, a sort of bias against Kojima at this point, just for, like, it's not necessarily his fault, but he has sort of been elected as the the industry's favorite auteur who can like do no wrong and like deserves all the time possible on every one of these showcases and it's like the guy does interesting work but he's not like the best you know developer out there he's not like the best creative director out there whatever it is he's technically is on this project i mean yeah obviously that's yoko taro and he's out doing whatever he's doing well, that's the thing is like if we want to talk about, you know, developers doing like weird out there kind of bizarre like stuff, pushing the form and all that. It's like, OK, like Kojima is like pushing the form toward like more and more cutscenes being what your game is. Yoko Taro is pushing the form toward being an interesting game, you know. <laughs> Do you have the tweet on hand that uh, yeah. Kojima tweeted? Yeah. So after the state of play where they showed Death Stranding 2 and stuff. They also announced that Kojima is starting work on a new action espionage game, as they keep calling it, which is a term that's only ever been applied to Metal Gear Solid. That is not a genre. It's just like a kind of a tagline for Metal Gear. So he's basically making like the legally distinct Metal Gear, which is called the working title anyway is Fizzent. And so I'm just going to read the whole tweet, but it's like the end of it is what's very funny. Fizzent will be the third new original IP since the establishment of Kojima Productions. It is a completely new, quote, action espionage for the next generation. It will be created using cutting-edge technology and the best talents from around the world, both from film and video games. Of course, this is an interactive, quote, game, but the look, story, theme, cast, acting, fashion, sound, etc. are all at the next level of, quote, digital entertainment that could be called a, quote, movie. I Which love this just, tweet so much. It's so funny that he put game and movie in quotes as if and they were entertainment. concepts. <laughs> He's like, I just came up with this, guys. Hear me out. Movie. What do we think I about this? I present to you the movie. I'm kind of obsessed with it. Like, this I man, kind of love it. Yeah. This man is so wild. And like, frankly, if I could be doing what he was doing, I would also be a little freak. Of course, of course. Like, he's definitely operating at a different level. It's just not, like, my favorite different level to be I'd, operating I'd be at. Walking, I'd be walking around going, I just came up with this thing. It's called, quote, the defector for, hear me out, these things <laughs> called, quote, games. No. 
<laughs> you know, every we we were talking a little bit on the group chat that we have with some other, uh, you know, the folks from like video game Podtimism and Press Start uh, and Into the Aether and that about Kojima tweets. And it was it was reminding me that like once a month or so, I like to go onto Hideo Kojima's Twitter feed and just scroll to a random part and just start reading. And it's always worthwhile. Like it's just he's always on some fucking wild shit whether it's just like i mean maybe that's not the right way to describe it but it's either like him talking about extremely mundane details about his life like what he had for breakfast or he'll just go on these like stream of conscious you know four tweet sprees that are just such a good time yeah um other things that were announced that i thought were uh, things i guess not notable or interesting just things i will say because i think a lot of our stuff is negative the one the other thing that i feel sort of positive about is like rise of the ronin um seeing the the sekiro influences in that game made me more excited for it because sekiro is a perfect game i was kind of conceiving uh like conceiving of it as basically like ghosts of tsushima but done by team ninja and i don't think ghost of tsushima is a very interesting game so i wasn't that interested but yeah seeing the the sekiro influence in there definitely has me mm-hmm. more eager to see what it's up to yeah uh the thing that i one of my favorite moments of the state of play is that they announced a until dawn like remaster mm-hmm. um which I, at the time, I had like you on Discord and we were watching together, but I was also having to like write stuff because I was covering Mm -hmm. it. And at the moment I was covering something. And so I had the state of play like off screen. So I wasn't watching it, but I could hear it as I was writing. And a trailer just started and I was listening to it and I was like, is this until dawn? And you were like, I have no idea what it is. It looks weird. It's blah, blah, blah. And then it was just like, oh, it's until dawn. And I was like, I love that. I just picked it out by the sound. Yes. Yeah. You. Yeah. You did a good job with that. To me. Yeah. I watched it and I was just like, it's a horror game. Like it's a trailer with women screaming in it. Yeah. It's just like a horror. It's that's that's a horror game. So I don't know why this game is getting a remaster, but whatever. It feels weird. I don't know. It's also a PlayStation Four game that you can easily play on PlayStation Five, but whatever. Yeah. Oh, Judas was there, barely. Which? Oh, why man. are we giving space to this man? I, yeah, I do enjoy the revival of anti-Ken Levine propaganda yeah. that's been going around social media. Everyone, like, <laughs> reminding people who've forgotten what a piece of shit mm-hmm. he is. Um, My favorite thing cool. about this is that I love the pitch that Ken Levine is like, you guys love Bioshock. Now hear me out. Bioshock, but it's on a space station. And I'm like, yes, I know. That's just System Shock and System yeah, Shock we played too. Prey. We played System <laughs> we Shock. We played Prey. It's yeah, fine. It's, uh, this it's is going to be a horrible game. It looks, I mean, it's hard to tell from what they showed because it's like all like pre-rendered shit. Mm-hmm. But like if what they showed is actually representative of the game, it is an aesthetic nightmare. It's just throwing whatever idea Ken Levine had into a bucket and shaking it up and just choosing things at random. I also feel like it's going to lead to a new wave of like Bioshock re critical oh, analysis, no. because I think what's going to happen, oh, okay. I think what's going to happen. I thought you were going to say like new takes on like other people making their own Bioshock. And I was like, not a no. good No, I think what's going to happen is we're going to play Judas and it's going to be so like similar to Bioshock in 
gameplay and like story and the way it does like twists um, that I think we're going to all look at it and then think a lot about Bioshock and it's going to make everybody be like, was Bioshock ever good? This is what I think. I mean, is I think happen. the answer is going to be yes. Like whatever. I, I mean, good people are for video games in 2007. Yes, that's the thing is I, I do think it, it's unfair to kind of criticize it by today's standards. Like by today's standards, it's probably not that exceptional. But for what it was doing at the time, I think it like it still. It was important at the time for a reason, um, and I think it still holds up in that regard, whether yeah. it's something that is like enjoyable to play still or like has that gripping of a story to like modern sensibilities, I think is another issue. But and yeah. it's like, you know, it's sad because Bioshock is now irrelevant because um, as far as games that want to make the player feel bad about doing things, we have Last of Us Part Two now and that's perfect game. <laughs> you just look yeah. so tired. Yeah, The Last of Us 2 does make me feel bad, and I haven't even played it. I'm going to talk to you about it later. You've never played it. I mean, that's good. You shouldn't. It's a terrible game, but that just surprises me. Well, yeah, I like read about it when it first came out, and I was like, ah, yes, these all Mm -hmm. sound like good reasons not to play it. Yeah, it came out on my birthday in the middle of the pandemic. So I I spent like the next three days playing it because I loved The Last of Us, and then I played it. I played it all like three days straight. And then I was like, this is one of the worst games I've ever played. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the last, the first one I liked, but then seeing that it was like, I don't know, just trauma porn. And then like, I, you know, by the time the game came out, there, there were already those conversations about it being basically like a pro, like a Zionist message and having some like deep transphobia that it somehow convinced itself is actually like, making a message when it's just being transphobic uh and i was just like i don't actually need that in my life i think the funniest announcement to come out of the state of play though was that there is another state of play that will be on <laughs> february 6th uh-huh which i guess at this point is already out mm-hmm. yeah for final fantasy 7 rebirth rebirth the only playstation game people actually care about ah, that game is gonna be so good i cannot wait yeah it's pretty exciting uh i think that's all the state of play stuff that i really had to mention godzilla is coming to dave the diver godzilla is coming to dave the diver love seeing godzilla getting more work uh did you want to talk about the game that you have already played that was shut off at yeah i think yeah that's a good place to to go next um one of the things they announced before silent hill 2 remake was another silent hill announcement and it was that there was a new game available for free like right now as a shadow drop and Mm -hmm. it's called silent hill the short message and so that night i played it and it's bad (laughs) um i wrote about it and why it's bad uh Mm -hmm. so oh oh what to say yeah so silent hill the short message is basically it's it's essentially a pt like it's a short little silent hill demo that's like mostly distinct from anything else in the franchise it's outside of like a few little teases and bits and whatever in the game uh you play as a teenage girl named anita she is looking for her friend maya who is texting her uh from inside a haunted apartment building in germany and you run around halls and hallways and rooms that repeat 
and there is a monster at times and you're trying to figure out what happened to Maya and like what is Anita's connection to Maya and what's going on. There, um, there are trigger wordings at the beginning, and I think they are important that people know them, but it's like, it's a game about suicide and like self-harm and bullying and all that. My issue with the game overall was that the way it handles its themes is about as nuanced and interesting as a cringe school PSA that you watch in like an assembly that you're forced to sit down to watch. That's what it mm-hmm. feels like. By the end of it, it's very much just like the message is bullying is bad and you should be careful about bullying people. And I'm like, yeah, sh- yeah, okay. Thanks. <laughs> um, Fine. Thanks. That's about as a uh, nuance as a message that I needed to be taught as a uh, violence, uh, cycles of violence are also bad. <laughs> Let's just keep shitting on Last of Us Part 2. Finally, you'll stop bullying teens. Yeah, it's just so, it's so cringeworthy. And it's also so predictable from the very beginning. Like, within the first... Yeah, I was watching you play and you immediately were like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah, it's so obvious. Within moments. It's one of those things where it's like, even though it's not explicitly linked to Silent Hill, like the rest of the franchise, if you know what silent hill mostly does yeah like you understand that there's a character and they're going through these horrors but it's always some kind of a reflection of something in their own mind that they're maybe not addressing or willing to face and it's about these horrors like acting as personifications of these things they're afraid to face and if you know that and even if you don't really you start this game and it's so very clear at the beginning you're like oh i i get it i know what's coming i know what's happening So that was really boring. I think our favorite moment, which I'm so happy you were there for, is there's (laughs) this section where you go through a door and then you end up like in a school hallway. And there are all these like ghostly shades of like high schoolers that start shouting like insults at you. And it's like you're it's like a flashback of you getting bullied and they start like shouting these insults at you. And it's like, you whore, you slut. And then um, one person just shouts, your art's fucking weird. <laughs> Which, yeah, that was a really wonderful moment. Oh, like, man. I was just kind of lost. It. Yeah, we had to we had to pause the game because we couldn't stop laughing. It was incredible. And I think that is that's kind of like the best encapsulation of this entire experience with the short message is the your art's fucking weird moment. Mm-hmm. It's certainly my takeaway. Yeah, it should be everybody's takeaway. Um, I have to say there are there are actually a surprisingly amount of good things about the short message that I want to give credit to, mm-hmm. which are one I wish the narrative went a different way because I think in the first 30 minutes of the narrative, when you're like exploring the relationship between Maya and Anita, there are some really interesting things that are happening that have the potential for really interesting story, but then they go the most basic route that is so predictable. And I'm like, eh, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. It could have been cool. Another thing, there are some moments where there's like these flashback scenes of Anita hanging out with Maya and they're done in live action. And the first time it happened, I like had to stop and I was like, is this live action? Is this, you know, CG? I can't really tell. And then I figured out it was live action. I was like, you know what? It's weird enough and it feels like 
it's making you think about reality versus fiction in a way that does feel interesting to the themes of the game. And I actually like that. And then the highlight of the game, I think, is actually the environment you're in. The apartment building, this like haunted complex is really, really cool. I think it's well designed. The way I thought about it is like an escape room or like a haunted house. The the like set design of it feels really, really good. There's all these like eerie things of these notes that just like start covering all the walls. There's this graffiti in places um, that over time like changes and decays. Tidbits of like information about this apartment building littered throughout and the story of the apartment complex like being doomed itself and like the people who live in it being like, well, there was a curse or well, actually it's because of these businesses that tried to like, you know, make it something and then they just left because they didn't get back their investment. Like there's a story there that's far more interesting than anything going on with Anita. And then also this is a Silent Hill game and there is a monster. The sections with the monster are stupid and annoying. It's basically it forces you into a section where you just have to run down repetitive hallways running from this monster and you're trying to find like the right path. And there's very little guidance. And I think you can attest by watching me. I had to do, especially one section, I had to do like 10 times through. And it was so fucking annoying. And I know, and I know this from other people, apparently your phone, because like you can see Anita holding her phone, her phone is supposed to help guide you in some ways because there's like static on the phone. And it like, I think it gets less staticky if you're going in the right direction. I don't know. It was not good. I don't think it's well designed. It's repetitive. It is it completely kills any tension also, because by the like fifth time I'm killed by the monster, I'm just like, yeah, okay. now I just have to start over whatever. The design of the monster, though, I actually think is sick. It's this like weird, tall, lanky woman who's wrapped up in like thick white sheets or something, and she's wrapped up with barbed wire And then she has cherry blossoms blossoming out of her like hands and head. So yeah, another thing is a great part of the vibe is the score, which is done by Akira Yamaoka, who is like a veteran Silent Hill composer. He did this. It's very good. Mm -hmm. But the monster design for the main monster is Masahiro Ito, Ito, who is also a Silent Hill veteran known for designing monsters. Specifically, he did the monster design for Silent Hill 2. So like he created Pyramid Head and the nurses and everything and like he goes off on this one too. The monster is really cool. It just sucks because the monster is stuck in sections that easily lose their horror. Yeah, I agree. I really like the design, but that um, the design of the monster, but that sort of gameplay thing always loses me where it's, it's supposed to feel tense, but the way that it's made to feel tense is that if you make like one misstep, you are killed but then, like you said, it's the more times you do that, the less tense it becomes because it just becomes an exercise of like, I want to get past this section as opposed to I want to get away from this monster where it, it's more you're you're thinking more about your own frustration in not being able to get to the next part of the story than you are about the character's, you know, fear of the monster like that. That style of like gameplay always makes me just be like, I don't I don't need this. Yeah, <laughs> this sucks. Um, so overall, it is not a good game. Mm-hmm. If you have two hours yeah, to spare, though, and you have like nothing better to do and you just kind of want to walk around the haunted house, go for it. I mean, it's free. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, 
you kind of have nothing to lose except for like two hours. <laughs> the other thing that at least has been front of mind for me this week is that Persona 3 Reload is out. Yay. Boo. <laughs> I am such an anti-Persona 3 Reload person. We know this. I mm -hmm. We know this. I have... I don't like this game and I would never buy it because I don't think I should support it for many reasons, but um, it's on Game Pass. So I did load it up just so that when I start being mean to it more um, in written form, uh, I can at least say I actually have played it. <laughs> it's really weird, actually, starting to play it because... You can feel how much, and reviews have said this, um, I think Diego's review at Polygon is a really, really good one to read. Um, and the thing he kind of goes into is that Persona 3 Reload is kind of the Persona 5-ification of the series retro retroactively. Mm -hmm. Mostly in like, not even in gameplay, which there's an argument to be made that taking the Persona 5 gameplay is good because it has really good turn-based gameplay. Um, but it's the vibes. It's the like, they try to make the whole game a little more fun almost and colorful the shades of like blue that permeate the menu and the world in persona 3 reload are just like a lot brighter when this has always been a very dark <laughs> game it's a very uh dark and depressive game and there's something that it loses and you can tell this in the opening, I feel like. For me, the thing that I'm struck by in comparison to Persona 3 Portable is, and this is a hot take and I know this, the thing that I really like about Persona 3 Portable is that when you're outside of Tartarus, which is the main dungeon, the game in Persona 3 Portable is essentially like a point and click on a map and then a visual novel when you're doing cutscenes or when you're just going mm -hmm. about your day when you're talking to people. And I actually really love that. I think it's really smart because it. I think navigation through Persona games is sometimes fine. It's, it's more just like of a thing you have to do, but I've never found it the most interesting. It's all about characters choosing what you're going to do in a day. And I don't think the navigation like physically through the space is ever that important to me and i think persona 3 portable making it a point and click where you can just like go to this point on the map talk to this person by just a click of a button instead of having to walk around everything makes the experience smoother in a way that actually inclines the player to be more invested uh where i think this like full-fledged you know rpg where you have to walk around and everything can be tiresome in a way it makes people more tired throughout the whole experience and then you get to tartarus and you're like this is even more tiring so yeah. I think there's something to be said for Persona 3 Portable's version of it. And I felt that way during Reload, where I'm just like, there's so much in the opening, especially where you just have to go from place to place to talk to people just to get through a bunch of like opening bullshit. And I'm like, God, I miss Persona 3 Portable just being able to, with a click of a button, just be like, yep, go to that person. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It looks pretty. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a Persona fan, but that does sound better. Like everything I've heard about the game, uh, about the series is like the interesting part is talking to your friends, building these relationships, kind of deciding what to do with your day. And I don't know that moving through a space adds too much. Whereas like, I think if it's not, if traversing the environment is not going to be interesting, then why add it at all? 
like why not concentrate on the parts of the game where like things are happening uh yeah i don't know that just seems strange to me yeah it's it's very pretty still and i will say that like to its credit and like you know i am an easy mark as someone who loves persona 3 like so much it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. games of all time when i got to gekukon high for the first time in the game i did walk up to the rooftop which for like people who have played the game and they know the story and stuff going like the rooftop is a very important place and i go to the rooftop and i like i did feel some type of way like it got to me <laughs> I, I was a little teary-eyed you go to the rooftop and uh-huh. you just like look out at the you know you see the sea over tatsumi port island and you see the like windmills and everything and i was like that does that is really cool honestly the thing that i love the most about this and it is one of the things that is better than Persona 3 Portable, is it's so nice to see animated cutscenes back. And they're so pretty. They got Wit Studio, who is a, a great animation studio. They are known for working on Spike's family. And also they did season three of Attack on Titan. Or was it one through three? They did some of Attack on Titan before MAPPA took sure. over. But the animation is really, really cool. Um, I like it a lot. It's one of the things I really like in Persona 5 is the animated cutscenes and having those done in like a beautiful modern animation style is really nice. I have one big nitpick on top of my other nitpicks. You have this in the doc. Is this what you're going to where it says? Yes. UI is great except one big thing. Yeah. Persona 3 Reload is great, except one big flaw that you won't believe. Um, I'm testing out headline options in the dock. No, yes. So this is a thing. The UI for Persona 3 Reload, by and large, is awesome. I don't know if you've seen trailers or if you've seen gameplay of it, of the UI. The UI is so cool. It is so stylish. Going from like looking through social links and like the calendar and all this stuff is really, really beautiful. It has this blue like water theme throughout. Yeah, I'll have to find there was a tweet that I was looking at earlier. It was just a video of someone going through the entire UI and just just showing how like it, it looks gorgeous and it's so stylized and interesting. It's not just a menu. It's just there's like all of these kind of extra elements that give it like such a flair that makes it its own kind of thing. That was, yeah. I really like that. This wasn't even the point of this tweet, but it has something that I want to point out. So here's the tweet. And basically it's just someone comparing screenshots of like Persona 3 Reload to the original Persona 3 um, to point out like how nice it looks and just how smooth everything looks. The thing that I want to point out is the comparison between the combat. Yeah. So and it's my my gripe with Persona 3 Reload is the combat UI. Okay. All of the UI is really great, except the combat UI for one specific reason. If you look at the combat UI for the original Persona 3 and it's the same in like Persona 3 FES and Persona 3 Portable is that all the options you can do in combat, there are six main options and they're um, situated in a circle. It's because it's supposed to be like the the um, the cylinders of a revolver. Oh, it's the six cylinders of a revolver. And it's like you are choosing the like which bullet you're firing, essentially, which ties into the whole thing of you use the the gun in the game to summon your personas. But there's seven here. One, two, three, four, five, six. And anyways, 
It's supposed to be, <laughs> and the way it sure, revolves, it's, it's evoke, yeah. evoking that, and the yeah. way that it um, revolves as you go through the UI to like choose things is like, you know, a gun cylinder spinning and it is for the evoker which is what they call the pistol that summons that you like fire against the head summons the persona so it's supposed to evoke that and it ties into the whole game's Mm. themes of like death being ever imminent and all these things i love it it's a really really awesome example of the ui tying into the game's themes at large uh, that does not exist in persona 3 reload they essentially just kind of take what is in persona 5 which is you have like five, you have four options basically just to the face buttons and i think this is bad i actually it really mm. grinds my gears <laughs> yeah it's going for like a pretty like a graphic designy take that looks nice as opposed to one that actually has meaning to it which i think mm. you know i think there is something to be said of that's kind of how persona 3 reload approaches the entire game is it's really gone mm-hmm. for in the way that Persona 5 kind of has a reputation for, Persona 3 Reload has really been like, we're going style first. This game is going to look cool. The UI is going to look cool. Everybody's going to think it's great, but it's it's kind of missing the point of how everything in Persona 3 Reload very consciously ties into the game's themes. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes me think of something that I've seen Several people talk about, but I read it first in Josh Bradwell's review for Inverse because I was reading that one first, obviously. I mean, both because it's on Inverse and because I like Josh Broadwell. Like he's it's a good writer. And he does point out something that like in the original Persona 3, I guess there's like the the Tartarus dungeon, you kind of like there's like an endurance mechanic there where like you run out of energy after a while and have to leave. And everyone complained about it endlessly, much like they did with uh Breath of the Wild's weapon durability which they were also wrong about and what his review points out is that like in reload they remove that mechanic so they make it easier just to do the dungeon as much as you want but by removing that it kind of reveals how repetitive the dungeon is because it doesn't have this aspect of you needing to strategize about when to stay and when to leave and i think to your point like about with the ui that does again i haven't played these games but that does feel like a very a thematic element as well that you're in this place that like drains you it's this supernatural place that like is difficult for you to handle being in and by removing it it just kind of makes it a dungeon uh and i i can understand why that would be i don't know something that's done as like quality of life like sanding off edges and stuff but the friction it's what actually served a purpose and by removing it it actually makes the game worse yeah and that's kind of my overall takeaway so far from persona 3 reload And this is me like trying to ignore the big thing that I have a problem with, which is the lack of the female protagonist. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. I didn't even talk about this. Did you hear the Persona 3 leak? Yes. Yeah. So a reliable leaker for Persona like titles basically leaked. There are allegedly plans for DLC for Persona 3 Reload, and it's going to be the answer, which is the the epilogue exclusive to FES. Um, apparently they're going to make it as DLC for Reload, which inherently pisses me off because this is supposed to be a remake. It's supposed to be a definitive version of a game. It's not like you are inventing an epilogue. The epilogue has already existed. You know it existed. You know it should be part of this because it completes the story and you held off on it so you can charge more, which not to be an asshole, if this does happen, is 
so fucking typical of Atlas. Yeah, I mean, that's a fucked up thing, especially like, yeah, like you said, like these are meant to be definitive editions. And also it's kind of like, I don't know, if you needed the extra time to work on it, push the fucking game back. It's not like this is the first iteration of this game and it needs to hit at this time or whatever. Like this is in addition to the other Persona stuff you're working on. And it just feels like it's kind of a package for people who are already fans of the game and to make it not the complete. I mean, it already wasn't. Is there any word about the female? Oh, yeah. This is the even worse thing. This is the even worse thing is that there are still um, the leaker is like, there is no plan for female protagonists. Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. this is in tandem with a review of, um, I forget who it is. It was like a Persona team director, essentially. And they were like, um, we have no plans for a golden or royal style re-release of Persona 3 Reload, mm-hmm. which would be like updated with some major content. And obviously the thing that would be obvious is if they did do that, it would be because they would add the female protagonist. And with the news that there is DLC allegedly coming, some would think, Maybe the female female protagonist is coming. Apparently, there are no plans for that, which is just even more egregious to me because they're like, we are going to add the answer. The thing that I need to accept and I think Persona fans need to accept, which is like there is something that has to be done now, is that to Atlas, I think this is what they want the definitive version of Persona 3 to be. They want to erase the female protagonist. That is not, she Mm -hmm. is not part of their vision of Persona 3. And I think this is one of the dangers of remakes that I talked about slightly with um, another code. The most malicious possibility is that Atlas is seeing a remake as an opportunity to help rewrite the history of Persona 3 and kind of erase the female protagonist. Yeah, yeah. And that's so I fucked up. That. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I wrote a take on this game that I haven't played uh, in a very similar vein of like rewriting the history of the game. Like one of the things I do know about Persona, it's like in the same breath as I learn about how much all of these cool like social link stuff and like everything people love about it. They always also point out that it's like insanely homophobic yeah which has kept me from playing it to be honest like i just don't need that in my life and uh there was a a story from i first saw from kotaku and then like ign and other people started writing about was that uh there's a scene in the original persona 3 where three of the male protagonists are on a beach like flirting with women and then they get this one woman who's like going to go home with them or whatever and then one of them notices that she has stubble on her chin And it's like, it's a trans woman. She like, you know, missed a spot shaving and the boys like misgender her and the the game's UI misgenders her. And there's like this trans panic scene of them like freaking out and leaving. So for Persona 3 Reload, they were like, let's take out the transphobia. Uh, And they did that by taking out the trans woman. So like the beach scene still exists and the woman still exists. But instead of referencing her being trans at all, she's like this conspiracy theorist kind of like scammer person. And so they react to her basically in the same way that they did to the trans character of just being like, oh, oh no, and kind of running away. And I I saw a lot of the sentiment that I saw from people was basically like from cis people was basically like, well, they took out this transphobic joke and that's good. And I fully understand where that comes from 
from a cis perspective, if you are just like, you know, trying to be an ally or whatever, and you're like, oh, this transphobic joke is gone. That's a good thing. You know, I'm generally agreed with you. Removing a trans, the world having one fewer transphobic jerk joke in it is better than it having one more. But the problem that I have with that is that the only way that Atlas could think to not be transphobic was to have there be no trans people in their game. And I think given the history of the Persona series, I think that's a huge problem. As I read about in this piece, it's not like every game needs to have some like shining example of trans representation. Like I think if you're not going to do it right, it's probably better to not try to do it at all. And I don't necessarily trust Atlas to do it right. But to say that the the solution to transphobia is just no more trans people is an incredibly fucked up way to go about this. And I think given Atlas's history in, in particular, this is one game series that absolutely like needs to go. Um, as like another thing that I point out, like you can portray trans people negatively. You can have a trans character that's even in fact, I would love to see more like evil trans characters in games because that would be sick as hell. The problem is that like you can't portray them as being villainous because they are trans. That is fucked up. And that's the way that characters like this have been portrayed in Persona games before. And so I think because of his history of both transphobia and homophobia in general, I think this is one series that like even that isn't really quite far enough. They have reached a point where they need to make amends for the harm that they have done up to this point. And it just doesn't seem like they're interested in even trying that. And I, it's not something that I'm like, I would be shocked if they ever did. It just kind of seems like the series is going to continue either saying queer people are a joke or they don't have a place in this world. And I just think that's endlessly fucked up. It's infuriating to me on so many levels. I think that Atlas's decision is poor. I think that the initial reaction by, as far as I've seen, not trans people, that this is a good thing that should be celebrated is very short-sighted and mm -hmm. not based in really fact. Um, I think erasing a trans character is a terrible decision. And it basically, like you said, and like you wrote about very well, um, erasing a trans person is not a solution to, you know, a history of transphobia. It does not solve the problem and it does not does not instill trust in me to for Atlas. Um, yeah, I think it all ties together to the problems I do have with Persona 3. It's all like in the same vein. And it does come back to me also to the female protagonist. I think, frankly, I think probably one of the reasons they also got rid of the female protagonist is because there's so many inherently queer ways to read her all the time that I think they just don't want to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote about this way back when the news first came out, the female protagonist wasn't going to be a part of Reload. And it's something I do think about constantly still, which is that there is a game, uh, Persona Q2 Labyrinth. Persona Q2 New Cinema Labyrinth, which this is like a 3DS game. The character's all chibi, but it's essentially like a Persona crossover. It stars the Phantom Thieves mostly, but they're in this weird like world like alternate dimension that is like movie based and they meet all these other persona characters from like persona 4 and persona 3 and one of the most touching storylines in it is that your party comes across 
the female protagonist from Persona 3. And she's alone. And she's like, I need to find my friends. My friends probably are worried about me. I need to find my party. And eventually, you run across the Persona 3 party. And the female protagonist is so excited and she runs up to them and she's like, oh my God, I've missed you guys. And then the party looks at her and they're like, I'm sorry, who are you? And there's this conversation that starts where they're basically like, what do you mean? Like, we're your friend and all this and that you're like part of C's. We're looking for our guy who's and it's because they're from the world of the male protagonist. This goes on for the majority of the game, and it sends the female protagonist through this mental break where she basically starts thinking about, like, does she have a place in the world? Is she a real person? Is her story, does her story exist, or is she just an afterthought? And does she have a place in the world? Because these people all only know the male protagonist, so she must not be actually, like, real. And the way that it ends, though, is incredibly touching because she like she comes to terms with being like, no, I do have a value. I do have a person. I am my own. I am my own person. I am not, you know, I am not a shadow of the male protagonist. And you see her wake up in her world and she sees her friends again. And they're all so excited to see her. Mm -hmm. And it's like so touching. And it's basically saying like the female protagonist matters. And then yeah. Persona 3 yeah. Reload happens and it's like, actually, no, she doesn't. Actually, she is going to be erased. Yeah. All those worries she had are true. Yeah, that sucks. God. Yeah, I mean, basically, to wrap up the conversation about Persona 3, I had somebody on Twitter who I'm friends with was talking about how Persona 3 Reload costs 70 bucks. And like, in this economy? <laughs> yes. And yes. It wasn't like even the point that they were going for, but my reaction was immediately to be like, listen, Persona 3 Portable is $20 and available on mm -hmm. all modern platforms and it has the female protagonist. I think it's still a better buy than Reload. Yeah. And a couple people agreed. And then this person responded, I trust, I trust you. And I think this is like legitimately my advice to everybody. I cannot stress this enough. If you have any interest in Persona 3 Reload and you've never played Persona 3 before, I beg you to play Persona 3 Portable instead. I truly think it is a better game. It is, an, it is a better experience. And I think you are doing a disservice to yourself by playing Persona 3 Reload just because it's the modern remake. I think Persona 3 Portable is doing way more things that are interesting, and it is a better experience that should not be forgotten because Reload exists. And that's the soapbox I'll be on all year. Yeah, no, good soapbox. Yeah, yeah I mean, if I ever play this game, I, I would I would go probably go for that one, mainly because I would want to play as the female protagonist. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, this gets me heated every fucking time. I'm so mad yeah. about it. I mean, yeah, it sucks. I didn't even really play this game, but the some of the stuff, I mean, the trans stuff is really what made me just be like, fucking come on. Like, is this the best we can do? Yeah, it's and upsetting. I guess it is. It's fucked. It's upsetting that it's, I guess, the best we can do. And also, I'm a little upset that people have not been more critical of it. Yeah. But whatever. Well, that's why you should listen to trans people. <laughs> that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's up next? Do you want me to talk about The Last of Us 2? <laughs> yeah, if you, I mean, 
you seem to have this like keep this rage train going well there's actually a lot of interesting things about this so the reason i want to talk about the last of us 2 is because they released grounded 2 which is the making of documentary which they also did with the first last of us and um man honestly just to start bitching at the beginning i think it's funny that this came out this week do you want to know why why? This is supposed to tie into The Last of Us Part 2 remaster that's now on PlayStation 5, which came out like a couple weeks ago. The documentary was not ready when the game released, so it wasn't part of the game. Um, if you open up the game, there's a section in the like behind the scenes where it's like, you can watch the trailer for the documentary. It's not out yet. We'll give a free update when the documentary is out. Um, <laughs> and I just think that's funny. But it is funny. the documentary is now out. And it's there's a lot of interesting things about it. Um, it's not a extensive view of the development because it starts it starts pretty early when they start going into development. But then it only goes up to like 2020 because when COVID happens, they stop the documentary. And then mm-hmm. after that, they do a couple like interviews in 2023 that recount basically what happened um during covid up to the game's release and after and there are a lot of things that stand out from the documentary there are a couple interesting things that are like neat little tidbits which is that originally this game was inspired by bloodborne is what neil Druckmann talks about and the way he talks about it is he's like we wanted it to be mostly melee combat focused instead of guns Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to have like a small open world where you would be navigating these areas and retreading and going back kind of like a Souls game. And then he was basically like, this isn't working. We're going to move on. We're just going to go back to what we like (laughs) kind of did before. Then the other things that I think are the standouts are there's a lot of talk about the reception to this game from like fans and the hate that the developers and the uh, cast got, um, which is obviously wild this is just something we've talked about a lot with other games but it's like people need to be normal (laughs) yes you can you can dislike a game and not be a fucking asshole to people about it like there is no game that's worth attacking people who like going after the fucking voice actors yeah the thing that has stood out a lot and has gotten a lot of traction is laura bailey who's the uh, voice actor yes. behind abby talks about how she, um she got death threats to her newborn son gamers must be stopped yeah seriously other things that stood out to me were <laughs> i this game frankly hearing people genuinely talk about it like f- so seriously is so I have such a dissonance about it because I'm like, yeah, I hear you talking about it seriously. And I'm like, you cannot think this is a good idea. And I'm sorry. Like, I know people like this game and there are some people like this game. There's blah, 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 discussions. It's a bad game and it's just thematically so boring and empty. And there's like a part where where the writers, Neil Druckmann and God, his co-writer, I forget her name. I'll look it up. Yeah, we we don't erase women on this podcast. We're we, not Persona 3. Unlike Neil Druckmann, we don't erase the people he works with on projects. <laughs> Damn. Allegedly. Allegedly. Don't come after us. Yeah. Allegedly hasn't mentioned Bruce Staley in fucking years. Oh my God. Seriously. Haley Gross. 
it's one of them or both of them. They're talking and they're talking about like the themes of the game. They're like, I just think it's so important to have this like message about the cycles of violence. And like, you know, when we really like do this violent gameplay and the people realize like violence is bad. And I'm like, you cannot like genuinely be saying things like this and thinking that 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 this game is good. And I don't know. I think there's there's this moment where I really am like blatantly looking at this documentary and I have so much hatred for the AAA industry that we live in because I'm like, I cannot believe hundreds of people who are talented and are talented artists, designers, writers, programmers, everything. I cannot believe they had to waste their time on something that feels so thematically boring just because it will sell well because we, because Sony and PlayStation, blah, 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 blah. And like, this feels so horrible to me. It is, it is distressing. It's, it's like, I mean, I think the thing to remember is like the people who tend to love this game and think its message is like that important tend to play AAA games that don't have messages at all. Like that's play like any indie game. Yeah. And this, this message is so trite. And I think the thing that annoys me about it is uh, the sort of disconnect between the story and the gameplay in this, where it's like, we want to tell a story about cycles of violence and how like revenge and, you know, continuing that cycle is a bad thing that will end up harming you in the end. But it's like, that's a story that's tacked onto very standard action gameplay. So you, you are getting this constant dissonance of it's a game that tells you to continually commit violence and then tells you that you are bad for having done it. And it's just not a sophisticated way to get that message across. It's so wild to me at points because they talk about um, when they're designing combat and there's a big thing about this game that got a lot of, you know, there's a lot of writing about it, about how violent and graphic the combat is. And they have a lot of discussions in the documentary where they're like, you know, we had to figure the right level of violent to fun so that people like didn't want to stop playing, even though it was so Mm -hmm. violent, it was the violence that was satisfying. And I was like, that's fucked up. This is just, it's wild that this is thing. And I was like, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And there's, there's definitely an article, a very, very, very long article in this idea. (laughs) But I think The Last of Us 2 is an interesting thing only when you accept that the only thematically to the game's themes, the only way to effectively understand this game's themes is to understand that you should quit the game and stop playing it. If it's supposed to be a game about cycles of violence and all this horrible violence that you're committing in it, and it's supposed to say you, the player, are bad, even though you're forced into a lot of these things narratively at points, well, then naturally the only acceptable thing to do to fully like internalize the game's themes is to quit. Stop playing the fucking game, throw that shit out, don't touch it. But obviously that's not the point. You have to play it because it's fun. Yeah. Like if the game were truly committed to its theme, it would not be worrying about making it fun enough to keep doing it because that is the opposite of what mm-hmm. it's trying to tell you. It makes me think of uh Geo's review of the remaster where he talks about the, what's it called? The, oh, the roguelike yeah, the mode. Roguelike mode. Um, I forget what it's called, but yeah. One of them it was, but he, yeah, yeah. He has like, an interesting discussion in there about how divorced from the game's theme is how it like puts the lie to the game's theme where it is just it is literally just a cycle of violence and you are meant to continue that cycle by playing it and it just like 
the fact that that mode exists just shows how little Naughty Dog and, you know, particularly like the people in charge, like Neil Druckmann, actually care about this message because you can't on the one hand say this is an important message about stopping cycles of violence and on the other hand say here's a mode of endless cycles of violence. That to me just says that you are deeply unserious about this thing that you claim to be such an important message. There's also one of the things that I wanted to point out and stuck out to me as like watching it as a journalist, watching it as press for games, is that especially it just shows for me how the heads of studios like this and the people in charge explicitly view media and press as marketing and nothing else. Yeah, It's like we are marketing and when we don't do that, we are bad. And there are a lot of specific moments that are pointed out, which is that there's a moment where they talk about we've made a demo for the press because we are ready for a new boost in marketing. And I'm like, you know, if you don't understand this and you read games journalism, previews, I hate previews. As someone who has to do them, I hate them because they're just yeah. marketing. The only reason previews exist is so that the press will write about it so that it gives the, a boost to marketing a couple months before a game's release. That's exactly all it is. And that's all that the studios and publishers want is they're like, give us the press so that people will buy our game more. And that's what they think about. And they literally just say, we have a press preview so that we can get marketing. There's other points where they talk about responses to trailers throughout. And they talk about how there was a lot of hate from journalists about how violent the game looked or stuff. And there's a whole section about press response to violence against women. And it's it's weird, but there's a lot of like journalist bashing. They're like, I hated this journalist and their take. It was so stupid. And these journalists did no research and they don't know what the fuck they're talking yeah. about. And it just so screens screenshots of articles with bylines and everything. I'm like, okay. Um, and then They'll immediately flip flop, though, to the next time they showed a trailer and then they'll show screenshots of articles with bylines. But they're like, God, this trailer is the most amazing thing ever. And we're like, oh, and, and getting that reaction was so meaningful. And I'm like, this is so fucked up. It's like and I know this as a press person. I have no fucking qualms yeah. about it, but it's like it's very much they're like. We hate you because you when you're mean to us and we love you and appreciate you and we will accept your love when you give it to us. And then anytime outside of that, all you are is a tool for marketing. Yeah, I mean, it's like any negative opinion you express is evidence that you don't know what you're talking about. And any positive opinion that you express is evidence that you are good at your job and like a thoughtful person. And that's just the way that all of these publishers look at journalists. And I mean, to your point that like previews are marketing, like to them, like reviews are marketing too. Like everything we do to them is marketing. And I think that, you know, for some of us, that makes it more important to push back and make that not the case. But yeah, it is so strange to have this renew, have this like, this documentary have such a focus on like how much they fucking hate journalists. Mm -hmm. It's just, this antagonistic relationship is so strange. Like there's just such this weird idea that we, you, I, they either like by they, I mean like mo like publishers as a, in general view journalists either as the enemy or as an extension of marketing, and those are both like very unhealthy views to have. We are just two different industries doing two different things. There's no reason to think that we would be aligned and like working toward the same end, and there's no reason to think we should be enemies either. 
I don't know. I get having thin skin about like getting poor reviews or whatever, but if that's the case, like don't read your fucking reviews. No one is forcing you to do that's and that's the thing is that like critical writing about art is not meant for the artist. There is no reason if you're going to get upset about a game review that you should be reading reviews of your own game. If you know that's a habit you have, just don't do it because there's no value for you in it. The value of criticism is for the audience. It's not for the creators of things. And I don't know why you would. I mean, I do know. I do know why you would have this reaction, but it's just so it just makes no sense to I'm me. I'm going to push it's back such on a, this a little bit because I have a different thought. I mean, I think I think there is some extent to which it could be valuable, but I, I'm talking specifically about like if you're going to see every negative review as a personal attack, you don't need to read them. Like yeah, that's yeah. the journalists have no intention of I mean, maybe I don't know, maybe some do. I don't know. Speaking from my experience, there's never an intention of this being about the people who made the game or about like, you know, anything that you need to get that bent out of shape about. And if you know that you're going to take it that way, just don't read it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I always go back to and I do like plug this all the time is as a critic, it's, it was Harper J's last piece. Games criticism is a kindness. It's like, if you want to understand what criticism is and why it's done, just read that. And yes. that's the whole point. And yeah, in that sense, if you have a healthy relationship to criticism and you are making art, then of course, go ahead and read it. But there's just no point to make it this us versus them thing or this, you know, we're fighting for the same team thing. Like both of those are incorrect. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously such a complex conversation with a lot of nuance. I think the thing that it comes down to is that <laughs> like anything the the enemy is the corporations and the like the big yes. publishers and the people <laughs> yes. in charge and they have tricked people into pitting themselves against other people they've tricked developers into yeah. believing they need to hate critics because critics will be responsible for them getting fired or their work not selling enough and then their studio getting closed that is what they have tricked them into when there is no yes. reason um that is how it has to be and i think it's another reason like it's an extension of why uh, people who like g gamers or whatever the audience is for writing mm -hmm. for journalism uh, has such an antagonistic relationship to journalists. Also, it's just media literacy is dead. And we live in a world where <laughs> companies and corporations have convinced people so much that their livelihood and their identity has to be linked to a product being good or not and being correct about their opinions and if anybody challenges that or says it's bad and tries to like take a critical eye to things then they are personally trying to attack you and that is the problem i want to it's this wasn't even on the docket but this has to do with like we're seeing this right now because of suicide squad which yeah. has been a disaster it's weird i don't yeah i don't that those conversations are so i don't know i feel like a very um exposed version of this where like it's always the case that gamers look at reviews uh, uh the good ones are what validate their ideas and the bad ones are the are the ones that challenge their ideas and to see it done for a game that is seems so like mediocre and not really worth fighting about as the suicide squad just really kind of lays bare how how silly the whole attitude is yeah i mean i think there's one of the best articles I think I've seen about Suicide Squad is um, Aftermath. Uh, Nathan Grayson mm -hmm. wrote an article called Suicide Squad is Fine. 
I think it's really worth reading. It basically dives into all this where it's like there's a desire for this game to be like the worst thing ever or good and people will need it. But it's like it's so much more nuanced than that. And it's so much more disappointing than that because it's just mid. It's middling. It's uninteresting, even with the good aspects of it that are in there. I also want to point this out as an example of the idea of press as marketing, which was so obvious in the case of Suicide Squad was that that was the desire because previews came out previews were across the board bad and Mm -hmm. then cut to like a month later when reviews are supposed to come out and suddenly you see all these outlets being like hey just so you know we don't have a review because we weren't given a code and it doesn't take a genius to look at the tone of the preview coverage and then figure out why they didn't review a code get, get a review code and i think people need to think about that more and It's yeah, I think the average reader needs to think more antagonistically towards the companies. Yeah. And yeah. And their reaction to so many of these articles was people yelling at the people who wrote them and being like, oh, you're just trying to make Suicide Squad look bad. And it's like, no, we're just telling you why we're not going to have a review. Like there is such an ingrained hostility with so many readers that it's like no matter what you do it's going to be a sign of you being somehow nefarious. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, we talk about this offline a lot, but I think so much of this is like residual Gamergate talking points that like people have such a negative view of the press and they don't even know why, but it's because a bunch of like fascists made a, you know, concerted effort to like drive women and other like people they don't like out of games journalism. And that has resulted in such a seething resentment against the games press that like people still repeat the same, like just like last of us two warned us about those people are repeating those same cycles of hatred without even knowing why they're doing it. And it's like being on the receiving end of them. It's so clear, but it's, it's just weird how people like don't even acknowledge that the source of their resentment is like a 10 year old feud Uh, in like incredibly bad faith yeah yeah i think we should all be demystifying the process a lot more yeah there used to be a thing i I forget where it was then i'm pretty sure it was at launcher for a little bit there would be this thing where they would put the what the embargo allowed you to cover at the top of of a review where it'd be like just so you know the embargo has mandated that we cannot cover past this chapter or whatever and i think Mm -hmm. that's really neat i think i love the idea that we can like demystify what the business process is behind journalism to our readers i think that's something that could be very useful yeah just being able to say like here's why I'm not talking about this thing is, is very helpful. And I think no letting people readers know like the restrictions that are being placed on, on us for writing them. You know, I remember it was one of the really, it was one of the most interesting things about Maddie Myers review at Polygon of Bayonetta three, because yeah, the yeah, embargo yeah. essentially naturally, I guess, but the embargo made it so that journalists couldn't write about the end of the game. But the thing was based on who Bayonetta is as a character and the reason people love her, the end kind of really threw that for a loop. And so by making it so journalists couldn't talk about it openly, it kind of hid a problem of the game. And Maddie Myers wrote this really good review 
where she essentially had to talk around the embargo and essentially tell people what the problem was without saying it outright. And she like even says in it, she's like, now I can't say because of the embargo certain things, but like if you put the context clues together. Yes. And I think that was like really, really good. I mean, yeah, that kind of transparency wouldn't help some people. Like some people are just committed to hating us. And a lot of people are, you know, still caught up. There's the entire like Kotaku and action subreddit dedicated to like hating games journalists. Like those people are never going to have a reasonable view of what this is. But I think for people who are looking at it with good faith and are maybe being sucked into some of the arguments without really knowing why they feel so strongly, I think, yeah, demystifying the process like that would do a lot of good toward at least showing them what their relationship is between publishers and critics and letting them make their own calls about who, you know, needs to change to, to fix that. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Do you have anything else on these topics? We kind of went down a rabbit hole of our usual like um, soapbox yeah, that this, we get on. This whole thing has been a rabbit hole. Uh, it's been a soapbox on top of a rabbit hole. I don't know. There needs some good games need to come out so we can have a fun episode again. <laughs> yeah, I know. We need a we need to play a fun game or something. Yeah. Zoe's gonna accuse us of being bummers again. Yeah, well, she's probably right. Just feminist killjoys. <laughs> uh besides all that, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like since I wrote the um Grand Blue review, I haven't really found the next thing I want to play. I've sort of been picking up a few different things just that I randomly got sent codes for or whatever, and nothing has really clicked with me yet. I have played uh, the Steam Next Fest is coming up uh, starting this week. Uh, it'll be happening as of this. There is a game that I played a bit of last night called Pyrene, which is a it's like a card game. You're not going to like it, Willa. But there is like there's it's a very different type of card game than like, it's not like a deck building type thing. It kind of has, it reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff in voice of cards in that you are moving across a space that is built with cards. There is, yeah, it's, it's an interesting game. I'm not going to go too much into detail because I just played a short demo of it. But if you're looking for something to play out of Steam Next Fest, I would recommend that. And I would recommend a game called San Fernando. You are an anthropologist and you're studying this town based on like, talking to people who are there and there's, you know, kind of like digging up the history of the community and kind of figure out like just sort of figuring out the community. And it reminds me of the pitch for season, which was a game that I was very excited about, but I think in practice didn't, it didn't commit to that idea of documenting a culture because it was, it became too obsessed with the end of that culture and like the things that were, causing this sort of like apocalyptic event and so like the the place itself that you were supposed to be looking at kind of got lost in the process san fernando is a very i think more focused approach to looking at a community in that kind of close way so i would highly recommend checking that out if that sounds interesting and the final thing talk about aftermath again really quickly there is a piece uh, this is not a gaming piece it has probably limited interest like depending on what you're looking for but uh this is article by Riley there. It's called You Could Just Keep Doing Dry January. And it's where he talks about uh, getting sober by starting like dry January is a thing a lot of people do. They stop drinking for the month of January just as like a, I don't know, like a detox or like something to try. 
And Riley writes about how doing that allowed him to like get sober when he needed to. And uh, it's a great piece. I will say for myself, like the way that I stopped drinking when I needed to was by telling myself that I was just taking a break. And then that break became several years long. And uh, it like gave me the space to realize that my life is better without, you know, getting blackout drunk every day. And yeah, so I just want to plug that for if you if either the kind of like psychology of quitting drinking is interesting to you or if you, you know, feel like you might need a little push to do that yourself. I would very highly recommend reading this uh, really great piece from Riley. Uh, But yeah, how about you? Uh, Yeah, so I haven't been playing many other games, but one of the things I have been doing is watching anime. This isn't necessarily a new... I mean, it's new-ish. It's kind of in the middle of its run, Mm -hmm. but I sat down the other day and caught up completely on Delicious in Dungeon on Netflix, which is a manga that I had heard a lot about um, and people have recommended me a lot, but I wasn't like super... Uh, intrigued enough to start it. And then the anime adaptation has come out. I tried the first episode and it was cute, but I wasn't like convinced and I dropped off and I just went over to watch other things. And then um, yesterday when I was just around the house and we're just hanging out, Zoe and I, we didn't really have anything to watch. And we were like, whatever, let's put on Delicious in Dungeon while we're doing some stuff and let's just put it on. And then we just kind of sat down and watched the next four episodes that were out and we just (laughs) became obsessed with it. And I've fallen deeply in love with it and I totally get the charm now. Um, It is basically the pitch of it is that it's very much a Dungeons and Dragons kind of show. It's about adventurers going down um, through levels of like this dungeon full of monsters. And because the main party in it is like poor and can't afford food and they have to keep going down deeper and deeper and stay in there longer. The way they figure out how to save money on food and stuff is to eat the monsters that are in the dungeon. And Uh it's essentially, it's like a fantasy anime that is very D and D inspired. Like they take a lot of rests and it has to do with like equipment and you know, exploration and then cooking, cooking and resting is a huge part of this show. And that is the main focus of like each episode is cooking these delicious meals. I love cooking and resting. Yeah. And it's so delightful to watch how they like, it's so ingenious how they take monsters that feel so typical to fantasy settings and then see how they figure out how to make them into things that you as an audience <laughs> view. And you're like, oh, that's like this. That's so yummy. It's so neat to watch. And it's it's just a really delightful show. The cast is incredible and they're all so fun and they have such good chemistry. The standout of the show, I think, is the main female character, Marcel, who Mm -hmm. is basically she's an elf mage who is disgusted at the idea of having to eat the monsters. And she's kind of, she's a girl failure and she's amazing. We love her so much. She's also adorable, but I want to shout out her voice actress for the English app adaptation. The voice uh, in the English adaptation of Marcel is Emily Rudd, who some people might know as the uh, the woman who plays Nami in the live action version of One Piece on Netflix. And this is, as far as I've been aware, her first voice acting role. 
And she is so good. I don't know what to like say. She's just, she has so much energy and so much character. The way she just like reacts to everything that goes on in the show is so incredible. She's such a standout. It's so fun watching her. Nice. But this is just a delightful show that's so relaxing and it makes you hungry. And I love shows that are about cooking. And if you love yeah. D&D, like tabletop D&D, or if you've been on like a Baldur's Gate kick, I think you'll really enjoy this because you'll see the like intricate D&D stuff in there. The mangaka who like wrote Delicious in Dungeon is a huge Baldur's Gate fan to the point where she actually the manga is now over because she yeah. <laughs> ended it in September 2023 because Baldur's Gate 3 had come out and she wanted to play Baldur's Gate 3. And this is like I did actually that. what happened. And it's so iconic, but um, it's very, very good. It's five episodes in and people should watch it. Yeah, I've been waiting to watch. I wanted to like get enough episodes that I could sit down and watch it in a couple of like long sessions. I'm very, yeah, it looks very cute. I've seen so much love for Marcel. Is that her name? Yeah, Marcel. It's just, I really, I'm so excited to meet her. Yeah. Very cool. Um, but I think that's going to be it for us. You can listen to Girl Mode anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on socials, some version of Girl Mode Pod. Man, I got to hurry up. Robin is yawning. I'm boring her. Uh, you can email us questions at girlmodepod at gmail.com or ask them on co-host. I am on socials at the Willow Row. And I am at Robin Bombas. Clearly, I'm tired, too. I don't even know what to say to end. Cook and rest, everyone. Yeah, seriously. Is it the best things you can do with your time? Send Cook us, and rest. Reply to our tweets with good food you've made. <laughs> yes. Send us. Or good just tell us about what good sleep you've been having. Oh my god, that'd be awesome. Wish that were me. Anyways, <laughs> we're gonna get out of here. Uh, bye. See you next <laughs> next week. Bye. <laughs>
Yeah, it does not agree with my sensory issues. That's, yeah. Maybe, I don't know. What are you saying? I was having trouble sleeping. She's yelling at me. I had I slept horribly last night. Me too. So you brought the body pillow into bed? Yes, so I did bring the body pillow into the bed, which Zoe gets mad at if I bring the body pillow into the bed if she's also in the bed wow. because it's like I'm cheating on her. Because you're choosing a pillow over her. It's the other woman. It's an absolute betrayal. <laughs> you do not understand. Zoe bought me the body pillow for me to sleep with when she's gone, and I get that, but like... Sometimes it's just very comfortable to sleep with. The way that the body pillow is like Zoe's number one enemy. Like she viscerally hates this thing (laughs) because she doesn't like that I like it. That's sad. I do need to buy a cover for my body pillow. And (laughs) I just, I'm so upset because like legitimately I would love to get a waifu body pillow cover. But they're all way too horny. Like, wow, they have their pussies out. <laughs> and I'm like, why can't I just have a nice PG body pillow oh, cover no. of 2B that I get a cuddle with? I'm sure those exist. You can find them. I think this is probably just your algorithm because that's the shit you normally look at. No, so it just translates oh it to body pillow covers. I just need to go to like a convention and just walk around Artist Alley. God, that would be local so business. fun. We should go to a convention sometime and go down the aisle of dirty artists. Yeah. I should get a booby mouse pad. You should.